Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The impacts of extreme weather from climate change brought four tropical storms and flooding to parts of Connecticut last summer. This summer, our state is experiencing drought conditions. And last week, the governor declared a moderate drought for New London and Wyndham counties, indicating dry conditions have impacted local water supplies, agriculture, and ecosystems. This is a stage three drought, which hasn't been declared in the state since October 2020. But the eastern portions of these counties are in an extreme drought, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. Today, where we live, how is the drought affecting agriculture and wildlife? Coming up, we hear from Long Island Soundkeeper Bill Lucy about how weather extremes caused by climate change negatively impacts habitats for fish populations, like brook trout. First, we wanted to check in with local farmers. Joining us now on the phone is Hannah Tripp, owner and manager at Provider Farm in Salem, Connecticut, on the eastern side of our state, where officials again have declared a stage three drought. Hannah, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. I wish we were talking under better circumstances. Uh, our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Hannah, I mentioned uh, the federal U.S. drought monitor um, saying that far east portions of our state um, and the county that you're in are in extreme drought. So can you describe the changes you've noticed on your farm this summer? Yes. Yeah, so um, I would say that the most obvious is in our irrigation ponds, obviously. Um, our main irrigation pond is probably two feet below its normal level. We're lucky it still has water in it. I know other area farmers farmers who are out of water, um, but this is definitely the lowest I've ever seen it. Um, and the drought really, you know, we're about 10 inches below average for the year in terms of rainfall. Um, but for this stretch from the beginning of July until until this week when we actually got a little bit of rain on Monday, um, we were five and a half inches short just for that month and a half. Um, so that's pretty pretty severe. What do you grow at Provider Farms? And given the conditions you're seeing now and then all that flooding from, from last year and all the rain, what decisions have you had to make? Right. So we grow um, diversified vegetables mainly, which means we grow a little bit of all kinds of vegetables that you'd see in a farmer's stand. Um, or at your supermarket. So for us, because our irrigation systems aren't set up permanently, we rotate crops every year, and um, we just don't have permanent irrigation symptoms, uh, systems. So we are manually moving sprinklers over most of our 15 acres to, to water our crops, and um, we just can't keep up. We just can't physically move them fast enough to get everything enough water. So for us, we've had to make hard decisions about prioritizing certain crops over others, um, which has been difficult. So can you give an idea, us an idea of the crops that you made a decision not to grow because of the conditions? 
So, I mean, we haven't chosen not to grow anything. It's just that there are certain crops that, that are not going to uh, survive mm-hmm. under under the conditions. So for us, it's been mainly fall crops that get planted early in the season, like potatoes, winter squash, sweet potatoes. Those crops just got neglected in July because we do a whole nother round of fall planting of broccoli and cabbage and carrots um and we prioritized the new the newly planted crops because they just wouldn't make it without water what are some other challenges uh in the extended heat wave and less precipitation have you noticed more scavengers about the farm impacting your crops as well absolutely so it's definitely been one of the worst wildlife seasons i've ever seen for us um really across all aspects of our farm so we had um, earlier this month, we found that there was a bear and then coyotes in our watermelon field just ravaging uh, the melons. Um, and then we also have had a groundhog in our greenhouse where we start all our own seedlings, just take out multiple successions of late fall brassicas like broccoli and um, kohlrabi and also lettuce that are going to definitely have a big impact on our farm, you know, later on in the season. Mm-hmm. What are you hearing from customers? Um, we're are lucky. We, our primary business model is a CSA. So we have um, CSA members who buy in for the whole season, and um, we communicate with them regularly with a weekly newsletter, and they're very supportive and understanding for the most part. But I do think that in general, People who aren't working outside or with food don't always understand the impacts that the weather is having and aren't always aware of the weather patterns that we're experiencing. And so it's important to sort of communicate with your customers about what's happening. Uh, this summer, definitely different from last year when there was so much rain and also flooding. And I think that was your first year as owner and manager of of the farm. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, and provider farm in Salem. So can you talk about, you know, the experience of, of that and, and how you're preparing when we think about these extremes that farmers um, have to, to think about um, for, for the future? Yeah, so it's definitely been a, a tale of two seasons for sure. They really couldn't have been more different last year at this time. We had fields with standing water and, you know, eroded gullies down the middle of, of beds. And this year, before this rain we got on Monday, we, you know, we had, it was a dust bowl just blowing our topsoil around everywhere. Um, so, you know, there were a couple decisions that I made over the winter about where to plant certain things based on which fields did well in the wet year last year that I would certainly like to take back because the, the, you know, the driest fields last year were our best and this year they're really struggling, but that's, you know, the nature of farming as well. So at least, you know, going into year three, I've certainly seen, seen a little bit of everything. You're a lifelong resident of Salem, and I believe you've been working at Provider Farm for at least a decade before taking over. And so when we think about the changes farmers are seeing broadly, when we think about how the seasons are fluctuating or just variability, uh, what do you want our listeners to know? So for me, just in the you know decade plus that I've been farming, I feel like the biggest changes I've noticed are the seasons seem to be shifting later. Even from when I started farming back in uh, 2012, I would come to the farm after my um, college semester in in May, and it would be hot. Almost always, not for the entire month, but for, you know, a few days here and there. And um, now the last four or five years, I'd say, you know, it's frequently 
cold and, and rainy into June. And on the other end, you know, we'll have hot summer weather deep into September and sometimes even October. So that's something I've noticed. And then obviously, just as any any climate change, is just the intensity of the weather and the weather patterns. You know, storms are more rain all at once. Droughts are, you know, more more uh, intensely dry without any sort of mitigating water. Um, heat is more, cold is more. So that's very challenging for growers to have to deal with the, the variability and the intensity. Hmm. Uh, Connecticut's a small state, and I'm sure you know uh, many farmers uh, around uh, Connecticut. You know, what are you hearing from them? Or are they worried about their futures? Um, absolutely. I mean, it's certainly a very uncertain time to be be trying to grow food. Um, I think, you know, like I said, I know several farmers in the area who've actually run out of water, who've had to delay plantings and had, you know, even more severe impacts than, than we have. So it's it's definitely scary. You're hearing Hannah Tripp, owner and manager at Provider Farm in Salem, Connecticut. Uh, it's part of the state where officials have declared a stage three drought condition, and federal officials say that's extreme drought, the eastern parts of New London and Wyndham counties. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. For another perspective, with us now on Zoom is Chris Bassett, co-owner of Killam and Bassett Farmstead in South Glastonbury. Chris, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're able to hear a little bit of Hannah's experience. And so what have you and your family experienced this season? Um, we're right there with Hannah and her farm. Um, same exact issues. Um, it It's detrimental every year. We always have issues, with, or I shouldn't say detrimental, but these last couple of years. But the one thing that we always remember, farmers are the biggest gamblers in the world because every year we never know what we're going to deal with. And Weather is always such a huge part of that. Mm. So south of Glastonbury, I believe the state sees that as a stage two drought zone. So emerging drought, you're still experiencing a lot of the dry conditions. Um, So I know last year we had talked with another farmer, uh, sub-edge farmer uh, and owner, Roger Phillips in Farmington, who told us, you know, they'd invested thousands on drought infrastructure like wells and irrigation back in 2020 only to be flooded out last summer. And so did you have a similar experience where you're planning uh, for one thing and then it's a complete flip of on the, in the other season and you're left scrambling? Um, <laughs> um, it, it's a crapshoot every year. So um, we didn't plan whether this year was going to be really wet, even with the weather we had last year. We did our normal, like we plant down by the river um, last For our crops, we have 93 acres. So what we do is always try to plant up on the hilly sides just because it's a drier in general. But again, trying to keep in mind that we have to be able to have access to irrigation depending on what we're planting there. And like Hannah, you have to pick and choose what you're willing to um, forego. Like we started a new crop of um, ground cherries this year, wanted to give a go at that. And that and a few other new crops that weren't as big or as, you know, knowing that they're not as well received by our customers, those were where the sacrifices had to be made. Mm-hmm. And what, what have you been hearing from customers, Chris? A lot of customers are very sympathetic, but a lot of them still have to be educated because a lot of them think it's like walking into a grocery store, which the grocery stores nowadays are 
not as supplied as they used to be, but I have people in our CSA who we post once a week on social media to show what we're giving to our CSA customers, but it's not the same every day. And a lot of our customers think, well, on Monday, if they got apples, how come I didn't get apples on Thursday? And it's literally, I walk in there in the morning and see what they've gone and picked. And depending on how much we have of each item, it's just that re-education of the customer to let them know that we can't walk into a warehouse, grab what we need and just put it in the bags for them or on the shelf. Mm. <clears throat> well, when you think about your future on the farm with your family and you know some of the decisions you've had to make, you know, I'm wondering if you can you know, talk about some of those conversations you're having, the adaptations that you either put in place or may have to in the future to keep going. We're always looking for that new technology or a better way to do what we already do. Ironically, a lot of the old school, what has worked for 50 plus years is still how we do things because it's the best way to do it. But if there is a new way to do irrigation that is cost effective, that is the huge thing with farmers is what's cost effective. And whether we're planning to save our money little by little each year to invest in a better irrigation system or this year what we ended up doing was buying um, fire hose from the local fire department because they were switching out their hose and there was nothing wrong with the hoses that they had. And we got them cheaper than we got, would have gotten if we bought used four inch irrigation pipe. So to get them up the hill and, and in, you know, sneaky little areas, it was a lot more flexible and worked out really well. So our planning is always putting aside money to improve what we're doing But again, just trying to make sure it's better for the future generations of our kids coming up. Mm -hmm. Hannah Tripp is still with us from Provider Farm in Salem. I'm wondering if you can chime in, Hannah, when we think about some of the adaptations or, you know, some um, practices that have worked for a while that are helping you now through this drought. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that everyone, like Chris is saying, you know, we're all thinking about how we can improve um, and going forward. And I think a big part of that is going to be probably more um, indoor tunnel, not indoors, but in tunnel growing. Um, It's a lot easier to control water and temperature um, and shade cloths um, on tunnels than it is in the open field. Um, So I think that's something that's going to be a big part of growing moving forward in this area. Mm-hmm. And how is using plastic mulch um, helping you? Yeah, so for us, you know, we grow mainly the hot summer crops on plastic mulch, which allows us to irrigate using drip tape instead of overhead irrigation, which is a semi-permanent system. It moves every year, but you can set it up once for the season, and then it's a lot less labor to keep watering that crop. So I, there are several crops that I'd like to move towards that just so if we have another dry year we're a little bit more set up um, to irrigate more regularly. Chris, uh, we heard her talking about indoor tunnels or shade cloth. Is that something that's been helping you as well? In our greenhouses, yes. Um, We've um, moved to shade cloth just to make sure what we're growing now from seed is good to go in a couple weeks or you know, depending on how many weeks we need it to put it out in the field and where before we'd have to plant directly out in the field. And that was not an option this year. Mm. I understand, uh, Chris, at Killam and Bassett Farmstead, you're also farming tobacco. I live up in Suffield, Connecticut, so I'm seeing those tractors out now uh, getting the leaves to dry in the barns. Can you talk about your crop and, and how it's sensitive to this climate change that we're discussing? 
Sure. It's actually the tobacco crop is one of the hardiest ones out of between the vegetables and fruit that we do to um, the tobacco. And irrigating is the most key thing for it, but it likes the dry, hot, humid weather. So the one issue that we do have is if we go this long of a length without any water, it can get stunted or shocked. And then a three to four foot plant of tobacco ends up being two to two and a half feet. So you don't get as much production off it in the end. Mm. Um, so not as much production um, this season, but you know, you'd said that this is definitely hardier than some of the other crops that you've been trying, you've been growing for some time. Yes. And compared to last year, where when it's raining, all you can do is sit there and, and we get too much water. All you can do is sit there and watch it. And this year, at least we can do something about it. it takes a lot more to, you know, a lot more work for us. But irrigating every day for the last month and a half is better than just sitting there like last year and watching it rain, rain, rain for weeks on end. And then dealing with the aftermath of the disease and the rot and that type of items that you end up having problems you have after so much rain. Mm. And so wet summers, uh, there's there's less that you can do versus uh, the dry conditions you're experiencing now. Correct. Neither one is ideal, but uh, we would prefer the drier year over the wet year because we would go out last year and pick winter squash, pumpkins. They look fine. And within two to four days, they just start rotting. And the, the, the concern becomes if you sold that to a customer, they brought it home and it doesn't last for them. We want the best product for our customers. And there was just no way to regulate that other than trying to hold on to it a little bit and see how it did mm -hmm. on our own. You've been hearing Chris Bassett here on Where We Live, co-owner of Killam and Bassett Farmstead in South Glastonbury. Chris, thank you so much for talking with us. And when you think about the end of the season, when is that traditionally for you? Um, our produce goes until uh, New Year's. So we have everything, winter squash, um, Brussels sprouts, all the fall crops, cold crops, up through, it actually goes through January. So our end of the season is not until then. Well, we wish you the best. Thank you so much for coming on to tell us about what you've been experiencing. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hannah Tripp is still with us, owner and manager at Provider Farm in Salem, Connecticut. Again, extreme drought in parts of those New London and Wyndham counties. Hannah, I understand you also um, have cows. And so I'm wondering, you know, the, the impact on, you know, taking care of them um, in these drought conditions. Right. So we've definitely seen a huge impact in our pasture quality. Um, we, we have a very small herd, um, definitely less than the carrying capacity of our pastures, which is, which is good. But, you know, there are pastures that just aren't regrowing the way they normally would. Um, and they're completely brown and, and dead at this point, which is just really sad to see. And so are you bringing in hay from other places or, you know, how, how do you move forward with that? Right. Well, because our carrying capacity is, is greater than the number of cows we have, we haven't had to bring in hay yet. We do expect we'll have to start feeding out hay um, significantly earlier than we normally do. Um, and I know we're lucky we have a good hay supplier. We should be all set for the winter, but hay supply is going to be significantly impacted by the drought locally as well. Mm. And what does that mean for cost? Well, I mean, feed costs have been going up anyway, um, but the drought is definitely only going to exacerbate that, for, especially if you're trying to source local, local feed and local hay. 
Well, Hannah, thank you for, again, coming on the show as well. Hannah Tripp, owner and manager at Provider Farm in Salem. As we talk about how agriculture, also wildlife, impacted by drought in our state. Hannah, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're going to hear from the state agriculture commissioner about how the drought is just compounding these challenges facing local farmers. What questions do you have? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or share a comment on Facebook. Find us on Twitter at Where We Live. listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, scattered thunderstorms are in the forecast today, but that's not enough to help drought conditions in our state, especially in eastern Connecticut, parts of New London and Wyndham counties experiencing extreme drought. Now, Fox 61 meteorologist Rachel Piscatelli reported 11 inches of rain would be needed to quench parched Connecticut, but also noted, quote, we don't want that all at once, instead spread over a period of days. And if the drought persists for another month or so, Piscatelli says that need could nearly double to 19 inches of rain needed. Now, we just heard from local farmers about what they're experiencing. Joining us now on Zoom is Connecticut Department of Agriculture Commissioner Brian Herbert. Uh, Commissioner, welcome back to the show. Lucy, thanks for having me and for dedicating some time and, and the program to this important story. Our listeners can join as well with questions, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So respond to what we've heard from Hannah and Chris and just their struggle from, again, last summer, too much rain, this summer, not enough. Yeah, well, and kudos to Chris and Hannah for making time to share their story and doing such a great job explaining um, what this means for them, their farm, and their their business operation. Nobody can tell um, that story better than they they can. Um, I was recently out at an event. Somebody said, "Well, is this is this to be expected? You know, is this the drought going to be the norm?" And I said, "Well, remember, um, last year we had way too much water, um, and so you know what's to be expected is you can no longer expect anything." As, as Hannah said, she was you know moving her her crop rotation based on what she thought would happen. Um, and so, you know, the challenges in, in a changing climate just create and compound um, the, the challenges that we face um, in Connecticut agriculture. Um, but what I am, what I'm, uh, you know, very proud of is that um, these farmers uh, continue to plant, continue to try to continue to adapt um, and make sure that Connecticut consumers have access uh, to these great products. Mm. It was interesting to hear, Chris, uh, from the South Glastonbury Farm, again, Killam and Bassett Farmstead in South Glastonbury, saying that, you know, with these dry conditions, it's almost better than too much wet yeah. because you can't do anything if it just keeps raining. We think about the rotten disease. Well, and, and you know, to, to the sense of optimism, I was talking to a farmer um, probably a week and a half ago now, um, you know, asking about the, you know, his, his irrigation pond and, and his wells. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we kind of got through that that difficult conversation and he, he smiles and he says, well, the good news is, you know, no pest pressure this year. Um, and, you know, the, the fact that he can still be thinking about, um, you know, the positive side. Um, but yes, when it's when it's dry and you have access to water and you get some regular rain, you know, not like this. Mm-hmm. Um, the crops are a lot easier to manage. You can refresh your wells and your ponds. 
Um, you know, you, you don't have to irrigate everything um, and your, your disease and pest pressure is usually a little bit less. Um, and so that is, um, you know, you, you, you don't want too much water, but, you know, some is, is, uh, is, is the sweet spot. Let's talk about irrigation. So for those farmers, especially on the eastern portions of eastern Connecticut, if their water sources are drying up, where do they get the water? And talk about the, the, the cost associated there. Well, it is a cost, um, and and people, you know, we could just kind of take take for granted that we have water. Um, you know, you turn on your faucet, and generally you have water. Um, um, but when you're trying to make sure you have enough water for a dairy farm, um, you know, your needs are significantly different. Um, so a number of these operations do have um, relationships with local water companies, and they literally haul in tanker trucks uh, of water for their for their animals to make sure their animals have access. Um, I know uh, a farm down in, in uh, New London County, um, just they were on city water um, at their farm stand and they were filling, um, you know, their cubes to take out into the field and we're hand watering um, acres of, of crops because that's what is needed to be done in order to make sure that their crops are available um, for, uh, for customers. You know, that, that's their investment, as you heard from Chris and Hannah. That's their investment. That's what they have to sell. So they need to make sure um, that they have a crop at, at the end of that season um, uh, to, to recoup their costs, to keep their business going, um, and to keep their customers coming back. And for those who have livestock, we talked with Hannah briefly about um, hay and fewer cuttings, less feed for animals, more costs um, compounding there. Yeah, well, and, and right now, um, dairy farmers are chopping corn. Um, that's something you usually don't see until, you know, October-ish, um, you know, maybe late September, early October through the through the month of October. Um, they, they chop their corn um, to create um, silage to feed their animals over the winter. They're chopping their corn now because the nutritional content, the volume of, of um, uh, the corn just isn't there. So there's no point in keeping it out in, in the field. Well, that means um, lower yields, um, lower um, uh, nutritional content, they're going to have to be buying in feed. Um, and, you know, as Hannah mentioned, um, there's not a lot of hay out there. You know, the, everybody's corn crop is going to be is going to be light, um, and so um, these farmers are going to have to be paying more and hauling more in state um, than we've traditionally had to do in order to make sure that they have enough feed for their animals to get through the get through the seasons. Mm. So, what can your department do to help uh, these local producers, Commissioner? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, we just received acknowledgement from um, Secretary Vilsack, literally um, while we're on the call here, um, that um, uh, Wyndham and New London counties um, are uh, declared a disaster. Um, and so that opens up some far USDA Farm Service Agency emergency loans. It opens up the opportunity to, to reconfigure loans that uh, folks have um, that are government backed. Um, it also opens up the opportunity for crop insurance type payments. Um, it, as, as we all know, we can't control the weather, um, but what we can do is better prepare the land for this changing climate. Um, and in a few weeks, we'll be rolling out through the GC3 um, uh, proposal um, to create and, and have available um, climate smart agriculture funds where we'll be making grants to farmers, nonprofits and organ other organizations help farmers with that transition to implement more um, climate smart technologies, practices on their farm. 
as Chris and Hannah mentioned, you know, there's a cost to do those things. And we want to help offset that cost so they can implement those practices and be prepared for whatever next year brings. Again, you're hearing Commissioner of the Department of Agriculture, Brian Herbert, here on the show as we talk about how drought is impacting agriculture and local producers. Uh, Commissioner, you mentioned this uh, disaster declaration. So what do local producers need to know in terms of accessing uh, that federal help? Yes, they, they should call um, the local county farm service agency office. Um, New London County is in Norwich. Wyndham is in Brooklyn. Um, and let them know that they experienced losses um, and what their losses were and what crops they had. Um, and that will help trigger those emergency payments. Um, if they have a loan, they can call the Norwich office um, and um, ask to reconfigure it um, or ask what, you know, what other provisions are available. If you don't have a loan through um, the USDA, um, but you're worried about being able to pay um, your bills, uh, you can you can try to get a or apply for an emergency loan um, to help cover those costs through these challenging times. Um, these are some great programs, and it's important that um, people are aware that they exist and, and have the opportunity to take advantage of them. Mm. You know, we were thinking about how uh, farms in our region have been impacted. We know Rhode Island's been hit uh, particularly hard. Uh, Vermont mm-hmm. Public Radio, um, they were talking to apple farmers up there and how less rainfall could mean a lot of or less apples. And so I'm wondering, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about the fall crops, right, the people that are looking forward to the apple picking, the pumpkin. Pumpkins, you know, what are you hearing from farmers who um, have these crops? Well, the the, the fruit is certainly lighter. Um, you know, the, the fruit will be smaller. Um, uh, and, you know, so if people want that, you know, that oversized apple, um, you know, you might not see that as often out there. Um, there's a lot more fruit that's dropping um, that the, the trees just can't support the, the fruit. Um, and they basically, the stems dehydrate and the, the weight of the fruit um, makes it fall to the ground. So there, there'll definitely be smaller fruit, maybe less fruit. Um, but the, the plus side um, is that um, the fruit will generally be sweeter. Um, so you'll get a more intense flavor of that pear or apple or peach or, you know, if um, people are still picking blueberries. Um, and that's, you know, there's so there's a, a little bit of a different experience there. Um, and that's why stories like today um, and, and our partners in the media highlighting these um, these challenges are really important. So customers know what they're going to be walking into and, and hearing from Chris and Hannah and other farmers. They know what their expectations should be. Um, and how important it is that they still go out and support their their farm and do the pick your own or visit the farm stand or sign up for the CSA. Um, so that that's really important that we can help set those expectations. Mm. When we think about um, just moving forward and uh, the, the irrigation systems that farmers have, a Connecticut public reporter Kay Perkins spoke with uh, Dr. Wong, who's a UConn professor of environmental engineering, a fellow of the American Meteorological Society, um, talking about this rain deficit the region's experiencing, mm-hmm. saying it will take several major rain events to replenish the severely depleted surface and subsurface storages. So can you talk more about that from the farmer's perspective, you know, the, the water sources that they rely on. Yes, and and like you mentioned um, uh, at the beginning of the segment, we certainly don't want to get those 11 or 15 or 19 inches of rain, you know, in a day or two. That's not going to help the situation. Um, But what we do want is some good steady rainfall um, and, uh, you know, some good snow over the course of the winter to to refresh 
um, the aquifers, the irrigation ponds, people's wells. Um, and that'll be that'll be helpful. Um, one of the things that um, we can do uh, and farms can do is put a cover crop um, on their fields uh, through either the USDA Natural Resource Conservation Service or potentially through this Climate Smart Ag program that we'll be um, rolling out. Um, that increases the organic content in the soil. That helps um, the, the soil retain some moisture. Um, so in these prolonged droughts, um, you'll have, you know, the, the shorter rains we have or the limited rains we have, that that moisture will stay available to the crops for longer. Um, on the flip side, like last year, um, when you have too much water, it actually helps um, the water drain through the soils. Um, so it's not creating runoff or, or washing out into um, gullies or, or uh, ditches and taking that topsoil with it. Um, so, you know, it's really beneficial to implement some of these practices um, for a lot of reasons. But again, there's a cost and we want to help people um, uh, manage that cost so that they can uh, put that practice into place. Well, later today, you and farmer Hannah Tripp, who we spoke with from Provider Farm in Salem, will be joining Senator Richard Blumenthal and Congressman Joe Courtney. Um, so again, you just mentioned uh, that uh, the Ag Secretary, uh, Thomas Vilsack, uh, declaring uh, parts of, of New London and Wyndham counties a disaster uh, declaration so that farmers, local producers can get some federal assistance. Uh, will you be talking more about that there or, or requesting other things, Commissioner? We'll be talking more about that there, um, continuing to raise um, the, the, the uh, message and let people know that this is available, continuing to share the story just like we're, we're doing here. Um, but also we're pursuing um, a statewide declaration. Um, we want to make sure that um, the farmers um, out in the northwest and uh, southwest corners have access to these programs as well. Um, I was out with Congresswoman Hayes and, and Deputy Secretary um, Jewel Brana um, on Wednesday out to Freund's farm in the northwest corner. Um, and they're, you know, dealing with the same challenges of the drought, um, you know, not necessarily as significant as some of our uh, eastern Connecticut farmers, um, but, but they have challenges as well. And we want to make sure that the federal assistance is available to them, um, just like it is to their uh, colleagues on the eastern side of the state. Well, thank you again, Department of Agriculture Commissioner Brian Hurlbert here on Where We Live. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Lucy. Appreciate the opportunity. Now, coming up, we're going to talk more about how extreme weather caused by climate change impacts local wildlife, including fish. Are you a local fisherman? What have you observed this summer fishing in Connecticut's waterways? We're going to hear from Long Island Soundkeeper Bill Lucy right after a short break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, the extended heat wave this summer, paired with not much rain, led state environmental officials in early August to close fishing near tributaries to the West Branch, Farmington, and Farmington Rivers. Those closures are still in effect. Uh, Deep Commissioner Katie Dykes says trout in these rivers were suffering from heat stress because of high temperatures and low stream flows. And the fishing closures in these spots were meant to lessen the stress on trout to avoid increased mortalities. We want to talk more about how extended heat waves and less rain has impacted local fish species. Joining us now on Zoom, Bill Lucy, Long Island Soundkeeper. Welcome back to the show. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Listeners can join as well with a question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so when we talk about drought, how does that impact freshwater and saltwater habitats, Bill? Well, the the, the closures on the Farmington are, are indicative of why we have to be really concerned about this. If you look back over the last three decades, we've lost 75% of our native trout, our native brook trout. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, I every summer I would go down and catch trout in a little creek called Comstock Brook, which flowed into the, the Norwalk River. And I remember going back there in 2016 when I moved back to the state and it was essentially dry. And there were no trout in the section that I fished. And so, it was a it was a it was a huge concern, and then going down to the Norwalk River itself, it was actually dry, and I'd never seen that in all the years growing up uh, down in Fairfield County. So what happens uh, first before it goes dry is the water heats up, and we have around four thousand or more dams in the state, and the water can get very hot behind those impoundments and then spill over. And brook trout can last in 77 degrees Fahrenheit water for a short period of time. But if it goes on day after day, like we've been seeing this summer, they're just, they're going to die. So I think that's probably what's driving the decline of brook trout in our state is just this gradual, continuous warming of our climate. Mm. And what about along the coast? Uh, what are you seeing? Reports of fish kills? Yeah, we're definitely seeing fish kills. Uh, we get calls every year, um, but this year it's been scattered about because there have been thunderstorms in some areas um, that have cooled things down a little bit. But um, what happens is when you have hot water, it holds less dissolved oxygen, and there'll be a little bit of oxygen in the bays and harbors, the nooks and crannies of the sound, and uh, Manhattan or Bunker will go in there. And if they get cornered by bluefish or striped bass that elicits a stress response, they ball up, they have a heightened uh, sense of uh, fear and they'll defecate, they'll breathe faster and they can deplete that oxygen and then they they, they die. Uh, and we also see a, nat a natural fluctuation between the daytime when all the plankton's making oxygen, just like all plants do through photosynthesis. So there's oxygen during the day, but at night it drops way down. And that's a lot of where we see these low oxygen readings. And we have a called the Unified Water Study. So we have monitoring going on in 40 bays and harbors in New York and Connecticut throughout the sound. And that's when we see these big uh, dips during the hot weather, typically July and August, uh, when we see those fish kills. Mm. Well, you mentioned plankton. And so when we think about even the ecosystems that fish depend on for food, uh, you know, again, the warming uh, waters uh, brought on uh, by uh, climate change. I'm wondering if you can talk more about, you know, <laughs> the fact that this is not good. Yeah, well, uh, forage fish is a big topic for our organization to save the sound, and that's why we remove a lot of dams. And forage fish, uh, herring, um, blueback herring, alewives, river herring, um, uh, sand lance, all these small fish you see out there, they need to eat zooplankton. And I was just out doing some research yesterday with a researcher, from Dr. Oster from Mystic Aquarium, 
and we were discussing how the size of plankton has been shrinking. And that's due to this persistent warming of the water. And I've also read papers from, of the, from some of the local researchers. We have a great group of scientists monitoring the sound on both the New York and Connecticut side. And the copepods, which are they're, they're zooplankton that feed on the plankton, are also shrinking. So just like we heard about the apples shrinking, um, I've noticed that on my little farm. You know, the raspberries are tiny, but they're very sweet. Um, you have less abundance potentially and then the amount of energy for these forage fish to feed goes up for the amount of food that they're getting so you're really starting to see these cascading effects from the hot water that stresses the the entire food web really from the bottom up mm. when you talk about the hot water uh, in long island sound like typically you know what has been the temperature that that's concerning you bill um well the magic number well, the one I've been looking at closely is uh, 77 degrees or 25 degrees Celsius. That seems to be a limiting factor for eelgrass. And we've lost well over 100,000 acres of eelgrass in Long Island Sound. And we're working on some efforts to restore that. But we have to pay very close attention to the, the temperature so we don't put efforts in the areas that are going to get too hot and kill off these restoration efforts. So... Um, yeah, I, I on the Great South Bay on the other side of Long Island, I heard it hit 80 degrees where there was some eelgrass restoration going on. That's really warm. Um, and you can see it. We saw it with the lobster die off a few degrees. It gets warmer. You really put pressure on the existing um, matrix of fish that are out there. We're seeing a lot more black sea bass. Um, you have to be careful when it's hot, when you're sport fishing for, say, striped bass because it's very stressful for them for catch and release. Um, it takes them longer to revive. Um, yeah, there's just, there's, there's a whole, it's gonna be very different in 30 years from what we're seeing today. And actually someone caught a cobia, a giant cobia uh, this week. I saw in that. Long Island Sound. <laughs> so, Connecticut mean, Fish and Wildlife shared a picture. And I wanted to ask you about that because I saw comments from local fishermen about, oh, they've been here. But the the idea with warming water, are we going to see more cobia, Bill Lucy? Yeah, it's kind of like when I was a kid, once in a while you'd see a black sea bass. Now you can't keep them off the hook when you're out there jigging for porgies. So, um, yeah, we're going to start seeing more They're trigger fish. I mean, the Gulf Stream has always gone by. and We've always gotten strange fish coming in here, but the frequency and abundance of them is definitely going to go up. And, but on the flip side, what's been going down are river herring. And that's the connection between the inland freshwater and the, the saltwater. And these are extremely important fish for everything from ospreys and eagles that like to catch them to feed their nestlings in the spring um, to striped bass, bluefish, and everything out in the sound that we like to go after. And Eric Schultz is a professor at UConn, and he's got a lab um, right now that's doing a project, can they get out? So we do a lot of effort removing um, dams to open up spawning and rearing habitat for these river herring, which are severely depleted in Connecticut from their historic numbers. And when we get these droughts, he's looking at, can the fish get out? So let's say they have a great spring, we get a good run and all the fish go up and spawn and then they go back out to sea, their eggs are still in the gravel. And as those young fish hatch and are trying to make their way back to the sea, if there's no water or they're getting cut off by low water, 
is that just wiping out the entire uh, stock for that year? So that's something that, that the Schultz Lab is looking at right now. You're hearing Bill Lucy here, where we live, Long Island Soundkeeper. As we can, we talk about how extreme weather and changes in temperature, the water are impacting fish in our area. You can join us with a question or comment, 888-720-9677, impacting their ecosystem that they rely on as well. Uh, Christine and Killingly, uh, you had a, a question. Go ahead, Christine. Hi, thanks for taking my call. So I don't know if Mr. Lucy would um, be the person to talk with us about. My brother is a trout fisherman uh, up here in the quiet corner, and he has been keeping um, copious notes for probably 15 years about what he fishes for the day, the temperature, where he fishes, what kind of bait he uses, uh, what kind of fish are uh, biting, and that type of thing, the weather. Um, and I I just, he caught 169 trout this year. He just catch and release. His last one was a trophy fish at five feet, uh, five pounds, seven ounces, 23 inches. Um, and I just, I wonder if this documentation might be valuable to someone. Bill, Lucy, do you have uh, any? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's only so many people working for the agencies and there's only so many scientists and really that's how we rely on getting data out of Long Island Sound. We, we have uh, over about two dozen uh, citizen groups or community science groups. So that what I would do with that information is I would share it with um, Connecticut Deep, their fishery division. Tim Wildman um, is uh, one of their biologists that we work frequently with um, that because then you can look at trends over time. I mean, that's how a lot of the records of climate change have been recorded, say, in Europe. You know, they go back well over 100 years, people looking at the first, you know, blooms when the bees first show up, when this fish species first shows up. And that's a pretty big, it sounds like uh, your, your, your brother's been doing pretty, pretty well with the fishing this year. Uh, one thing I will say about dams, if they're bottom-release dams, they can release cold water into the streams. And that's what we really need uh, as we see all this development, loss of riparian buffer areas, basically trees shading the, the rivers. Um, the dams can actually be used to manage to, to save some of those trout during these really dry, uh, hot conditions. And Christine, we'll be sure to share your information uh, with uh, DEEP, which is the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection Fisheries uh, Department. So uh, hopefully we can connect you uh, with them. Uh, before we run out of time, Bill, we just have a, a couple of minutes uh, for listeners uh, who are, have been listening. When we think about you know what we can do in the short term as well as the long term, we know the key is you know cutting emissions uh, to help uh, dull this impact uh, that we're seeing from climate change. I'm wondering if you can talk about the federal uh, law and how it, this may help uh, and what more we can do. Uh, yeah, well, we just passed a scaled down version of Build Back Better, I guess, in the, well, the climate bill or the Inflation Reduction Act. And it's, it's fairly loose um, as far as uh, the solution. So we need all of the above. We need to uh, reduce our carbon emissions through the transportation sector. We need to make our homes energy efficient. We need to use less water. Um, we need to potentially change our diet to uh, look at crops that aren't so um, hungry for water. There's, we have to do absolutely everything. And, and the bottom line is we've got to start taking this climate change uh, issue seriously. There's not a lot of denial left. 
but for many years that slowed slowed the solutions down and you know it's like the yankees and the red sox fans you know fighting it out it's like we need to stop that this is a problem that's that's facing all of us and we really need to work together as a society both a global community and and as our nation to really address these issues aggressively Again, you've been hearing Bill Lucy here on Where We Live, Long Island Soundkeeper. Bill, thank you for your time. Are you going to try to catch a cobia now? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go this weekend with some buddies, yeah. (laughs) We appreciate your perspective on the show. Thank you. And as we heard earlier uh, from Agriculture Commissioner Brian Hurlbert, uh, the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Thomas Vilsack uh, declaring New London and Wyndham counties uh, as designed by the federal agency as primary natural disaster areas due to the recent drought. We'll continue monitoring this, uh, and we hope that you join us on Monday for a conversation about the upcoming gubernatorial race. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Uh, special thanks to Katie Tolarski today. Have a great weekend.